Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Motherkind podcast. I hope you're all really well this week. I have a beautiful conversation for you today with Dr. Jessamy Hibbert, who is a clinical psychologist, a speaker and best-selling author. In this episode, we talk about her approach to happiness, managing the mind, and this fundamental idea, which I talk about all the time, regular listeners are probably bored of it, which is that you are not your thoughts. And we also deep dive into her new book, The Imposter Cure, which is all about imposter syndrome. I wonder if you have experienced imposter syndrome. I know I have, and I actually think many of us experience it, whether at work or home or both. So I hope you find the ideas today transformational and really inspiring to help you move past this idea that you are a fraud or an imposter and into this idea and believing that you're just a human doing your best with good days and bad days, as all of us are. I hope you really enjoy the episode. If you're listening and you're thinking about a friend who perhaps has experienced imposter syndrome and you think, I wish she could see that she's not an imposter, please do send this episode to her or him. You know, it's also fathers that listen to this podcast. So please do share the episode if you think you know someone that might resonate. Here it is. Welcome to the podcast. I am super excited to get into lots of different topics, but primarily imposter syndrome with you this morning. So welcome. Thank you for having me. And you're a mum of three as well, aren't you? So I'm looking forward to putting that perspective onto your specialisms and passions. So let's start, I guess, right at the top. I know you've had many focuses in your career, but this kind of latest focus on imposter syndrome, was that because you never experienced it or because you did experience it? (laughs) Well, I think the big thing about imposter syndrome is that it is kind of part of being human and most people experience it. And I definitely include myself in that. And I suppose I got interested in it because I work in a very kind of privileged part of London and I get to work with some amazing people and they're really successful in their careers and they would come to me not necessarily with a focus on that but there would be this side to them where they were anxious about how they were doing worried that they weren't achieving enough and I'd kind of witness them say to me you know once I get this project in I'll be final once I get this promotion and yet they'd get the promotion and it made no difference And I suppose it was at a time when imposter syndrome was getting a bit more current. And I was very fortunate that Kate, my lovely editor at Asta, she was thinking about imposter syndrome too, because she really experienced it and suffered from it. And so it was kind of nice timing in terms of they approached me and asked me if I'd like to write something about it. And it really fitted for me in terms of the clients I see, you know, for myself, but also an area I was really interested in. So how do you define imposter syndrome and how is it different than like lack of confidence or self-doubt? 
I think the big difference is that with confidence or self-doubt, they're more like a circle. So you kind of start with insecurity and then you do something that you know that is challenging to you and kind of pushes you out of your comfort zone. And then afterwards, you feel more confidence as a result of that. Whereas for imposters, they try new things or even within their job that they're used to, they kind of work hard and yet it never really shifts. And the reason for that is because what I think of as a faulty belief. So they believe that they should kind of feel ready for the task or that they should be really confident before they start. And so then when they feel that self-doubt and insecurity, they misinterpret that and think that it means they're an imposter. And the big problem is that even when they achieve those things, they have different rules for when they do well and when they do badly. So if they do well, they see it as down to external circumstances like luck or the team or good timing. Whereas if it goes badly, they take it as a personal failing. So they can't ever shift the view. And it's been around for a long time. It was first researched by two clinical psychologists in 1978, Dr. Clance and Dr. Imus. And they originally thought it was just women who were affected. But actually, the research since shows a really different picture. And for them, they defined it as this, you know, despite lots of evidence to the contrary and external success and doing well, that this persistent belief doesn't shift. There's so much in there I want to unpack. The first thing is I love this phrase that you use, faulty belief. I'm a coach, so I'm working constantly with faulty beliefs and encouraging people to look at evidence on the contrary. And I also loved what you said about an imposter will take the natural fear. I think this is one of the things that I just wish everyone knew, that fear is just not a sign that you're doing it wrong or you shouldn't be doing it it's just a sign that you're growing and expanding it's an amazing thing but what I heard was that an imposter would take that fear and doubt as further evidence that they're not good enough and get stuck in that cycle it's almost like an ever-shifting needle that they never can reach exactly and like you say discomfort is part of life And in a way, you know, you don't want to be in that zone all the time, but if you're never in it, that's not a good sign either. And I think we often have a belief that other people know what they're doing or have got it all together and we're judging people by what we see and we forget that we're just hearing what's in our heads and that we don't hear what's in their heads. So we just see their external world and we're comparing it to our internal world. And again, for imposters, they've got this gap between the reality of how everybody experiences life, discomfort, all of those things and where they believe they should be. Is it 70% of women, 50% of men? Still slightly high for women experience this. I mean, I found that surprising that it's not everyone, to be honest, that experiences some sense of, am I good enough to be doing this? When I read that, I was like, okay, so all those women that I see that I perceive them to be nailing it on Instagram or in the press Mm -hmm. or in, you know, the, the shelves in Waterstones probably feel the way I do at times which is who am I to be doing this am I good enough to be doing this yeah and I think that's incredibly reassuring because I think we can get this idea that when we hit these milestones we won't feel that way and yet the opposite is true isn't it unfortunately with imposter syndrome you've seen this haven't you that it gets more acute the more successful we are can you unpack why that is I mean, it varies from person to person, but I would say as a general idea, the higher you get, the more you feel eyes are on you and the more pressure there is. And if you're not feeling good enough already and then you're not taking on board any of your achievements, you're still feeling like you're back at 
whatever age you kind of got to when you didn't have these things and yet you're managing a massive team or you're pushing forward your own business and it feels like it's much further to fall then it's such a painful cycle to live in yeah imposter syndrome because it's almost that you touched on at the start that when then game when I get this then I'll feel different but the then never comes No, and if you think about all the things that go on when you've got imposter syndrome, like the anxiety, the insecurity, the kind of stress and pressure that you put yourself under, it also means that you're constantly kind of in almost like high alert, but also there's no space to just put it all together afterwards and be like, actually, yeah, I did all right with that. Or, you know, kind of time to take it in because you're already worried about the next thing or you're already putting yourself under more pressure to do something in terms of the next promotion or the next project. Are there different ways this manifests for different people or is it the same for everyone? Somebody called Valerie Young did lots of research on it and she found five different types. And the type depends on how you define success, essentially what she kind of calls failure-related shame. So her five that she discovered are the perfectionist, which is kind of setting yourself those incredibly high standards. Anything less than perfect feels like failure. So when you don't do it perfectly or you see something that you could have improved on, then you focus on that and it's hard to shift your view. The next one is natural genius. And for them, it's slightly different. They're still working incredibly hard at things, but they believe they should just be able to do it really easily and first time. And that's the kind of person who at school just found, you know, exams easy, was always kind of top of the class, never had to work that hard for things. And then you're suddenly into a job where you're pushed or where there's other people like you. And when you can't get it right straight away, it feels like you're not good enough at it rather than understanding that doing well at anything takes hard work and time. Then there's the soloist, which is believing that achievement only counts if you do it on your own. So if you're part of a team or other people had to help you or you asked for, you know, kind of extra information, then it feels like it's a black mark. You didn't do it and you had to ask for help so it doesn't count. The fourth is the expert and that's somebody who will do countless courses or feel like they have to know everything before they start to begin. And I think that in a way, you know, if you think about some people, they're happy just to give it a go and then let their experience catch up with them. Whereas for this group, they feel like they're only confident to do it if they know absolutely everything about it. And then the last group, she calls it the superwoman or superman. And that's like the perfectionist on turbocharge. So you want to be good at absolutely everything you do and do it to the highest of standards, whether it's work, family, volunteering, hosting friends. And so you kind of push yourself relentlessly on all the different areas And you kind of only feel as good as the many things that you're juggling rather than recognising that actually trying to do all of those things at the same time is impossible. And can you identify yourself in multiple ones models? Yeah. And I think what's helpful about it is when you start to identify it, you can see that actually it doesn't quite add up. So, for example, I would definitely be somebody who likes to know it all before I start. And I love doing university courses or when I was younger, I remember wanting to play golf, but instead of just playing, having like lessons before. But I think when you see it and you kind of identify it, there's then space to separate. Am I doing this because I want to or am I doing this because I feel like I need to to be good enough? You know, and it's really subtly different, but it does make a big difference. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because we tend to think of imposter syndrome, I guess, from 
probably most famously Sheryl Sandberg, who really brought this into the lexicon with her book Lean In. We tend to think of it with a work lens, or certainly I do. If I think about this with a parenting and mothering lens, it's just fascinating, isn't it? Particularly new motherhood. Like, is there an experience with arguably higher stakes? And if you're a first-time mother, you don't have that experience. And it's when you said the expert, I was thinking, gosh, I know a lot of my friends who took that into their parenthood and just thought if they read every single book mm-hmm. that would prepare them or the perfectionist who you know the baby's not allowed to cry and nothing's allowed to go on the floor tell us a bit about your experience being a parent of three and with clients manifest in that way like you say it doesn't just belong in the work sphere and it's most understood in that area but it can apply to your confidence as a parent you know your friendships and relationships And I suppose in terms of parenting, it makes me think about, you know, turning up at the school gates and you've got to get everybody out the front door with their bags, you know, to school on time. And yet most mothers then get to school and see everybody else there and imagine they've had a kind of morning that hasn't involved any upsets or hasn't involved any kind of stress. And I think it's, again, that narrative you have in your mind about how you should do it so like you're describing with some of your friends this idea that there's a way to parent perfectly or this idea that there's a right way and a wrong way whereas actually there's just many ways with these things and I think it comes down to then you become a parent completely has an impact on how you see yourself it brings up lots of insecurities and self-doubt is a kind of big part of it you're got a baby who can't tell you what they need or what they want and for lots of people they've come from a life that is kind of more straightforward and easy to understand and so it's such a shift and I think that's the thing about imposter syndrome it preys on insecurity and fears and so whether it's becoming a parent or making new friends and meeting new people it can kind of weave itself in there. So what do we do about imposter syndrome? I imagine most people listening are identifying with what we're saying What's the way out? The thing about it is that there's lots that you can do about it once you're aware of it. And I guess the first thing is identifying it and seeing that it is imposter syndrome, not that you're actually an imposter. And I had this really nice email recently from someone who read my book and she said, you know, I completely knew what imposter syndrome was, but I thought other people had imposter syndrome and I was an imposter. (laughs) And I think that's the big thing because firstly, recognizing it really is imposter syndrome it's really difficult when you've got all of these kind of traps and ways of thinking about these things in place that prevent you from seeing that so whether it's not telling anybody how you feel or whether it's working extra hard so that you feel like it's only thanks to the hard work that things have pulled off so once you have more of an awareness of it it's almost putting all of those things to the test a bit more and I think the biggest thing is to start to externalize the imposter voice so that you hear it as the voice of your fears or the imposter, you know, what it wants you to believe rather than your voice and what you're thinking about things. And then you have a chance to challenge it, like we're saying, you know, like you do with your clients with this idea of, well, what's the evidence? You know, this is a thought or a feeling rather than a fact. And what's the reality of what's going on here? And to start to shift your view, it's about taking in your whole life rather than the bits that you're unhappy with or focusing on the bits where you felt like you could have improved so if it's in my clinic I'd get people to start to do a CV of all of their achievements and think about all the things they've done well with whether it's career or 
family or compliments or feedback from other people and actually kind of have it down on paper, make it really concrete. And then it's something that they kind of gradually add to and regularly read back. Because again, if you think about those rules, you're not connected to any of your success. You're not talking about it. You're not thinking about it. You're not going back over it. And yet you're constantly going over all the things you're worried about or unhappy with. And I think it's also kind of tracking those things going forward. So you start to shift your focus away from this problem-focused view, which our brains are really good at latching onto whether we feel like imposters or not. It's just that simple adage that I think about a lot, which is what we focus on gets bigger. I kind of think of it like a painting. Most people focus on 5-10% to of their life that they're unhappy with the majority of the time. But if you were looking at a picture and you thought, you know, okay, look at 5-10% to of it, what is it? you'd have no idea. And yet that's how we're viewing ourselves, you know, through this really warped lens. I started a file, actually. It's interesting you said that. I started it a while ago when I first got into personal development. So probably like 15 years. And I read it in a book somewhere and I thought that's just a super smart idea to print off every bit of positive feedback or I'd write it down. And now the file is I mean, it's 15 years worth. It's quite big. And so whenever I feel that imposter feeling like, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm rubbish, you know, maybe I got some bad feedback and my mind is just making that the whole picture as you were sharing. I go to the file. It's never, ever, ever, I've never got to the end of that file and felt the same way I did at the start. And I think that when you're feeling anxious, you can't reach those thoughts very easily because your brain is not feeling rational at those points. So having it written down and having a kind of concrete, thing to look at when you're feeling like that makes such a difference and it's funny when I see people even if I'm getting them just to record the good stuff that happens in the week often as they read back the list to me they're like oh yeah I forgot about that oh I did that as well and how quickly you forget those things it's amazing that our minds work against us don't they for that they filter out the good so I love this idea of challenging our thoughts and you know you say thoughts aren't just that one idea is incredibly empowering and I know it was game-changing for me you know I used to walk around just believing every thought which when I think about it now was such a painful insane way to live (laughs) but I think it's a practice isn't it to learn to challenge those thoughts how do we know when something is a thought to challenge and it might be something to do with with the imposter or when some feedback to take on board and actually yeah maybe I do need to get some more skills in that area or maybe I could have done a better podcast interview how do we get that nuance right you know like you say there's two parts of it isn't that the first part is starting to notice what your thoughts are saying to you because actually most people don't particularly notice what their mind's saying it's like an internal commentary that runs along with you that you're not particularly aware of until you start to think about it in a different way and I guess then once you're more aware of it it's but you've got a choice before you just went with it without recognizing it was happening. Whereas once you see it, you've got a choice about how you follow that thought and what you do with it. And I guess in a way, it's partly just looking at the different perspectives and remembering there's always more than one way of looking at things. I suppose ultimately we don't ever know for sure unless we can ask someone or verify in some way what is true or false. And I think it's a kind of like acceptance of that too. And that probably... For some things, you know, it doesn't even matter that much. So, for example, if you're stuck on a thought about, I don't know what somebody else thinks of you, then one, it's quite hard to know for sure unless you ask the person, but two, probably 
there's not much you can do it all they're thinking more about yourself it's you know they're thinking more about their selves it's much more likely but I guess on the things that matter to you and that you care about if it's feedback and the feedback source is a good one i.e somebody that you know well or that you respect then it's kind of looking more at it and thinking more about it and I suppose as well it's probably doing it when your emotions aren't so high so when your emotions are high thinking about those things can be quite difficult whereas when you're feeling in a reflective state it's much easier to start to think okay well what was I pleased with what wasn't I and I guess that in a way that's part of kind of compassion it's being able to see what you need to improve on it's recognizing your strengths and it's kind of still working really hard at these things but without that critical or those negative thoughts in the background I sometimes say this phrase what is this what's the source who did it come from is it someone I would go to for advice if so I'm probably going to listen to their feedback if I would never go to them with advice I might take that feedback with a bit of salt that's been a really helpful barometer for me when people start to unpack this imposter syndrome what's some of the benefits that you see in the clients that you've helped transform like how do people show up differently to life with a bit more freedom from Mm. this oppression of imposter syndrome I suppose that the big change is not feeling that constant anxiety and fear of being found out and questioning yourself and being unsure of how you're doing and that actually you know it kind of runs on a continuum so for some people it's just in certain situations or, you know, at certain points in their life when they're doing new things or kind of pushing themselves out of their comfort zone. For some people, it's in their life a lot of the time. And for some people, it can be at a level that's actually quite paralysing. And so when you think about the things that come into play when it is more strong, then things like perfectionism, overwork, procrastination, avoidance, you know, they have a huge impact on your life. And so I suppose being able to live your life without that constant doubt in the background and also recognizing that actually you know lots of people feel like they're doing well because of imposter syndrome whereas they're doing well because they're somebody who you know is hardworking, wants to do well works hard it's nothing to do with the imposter syndrome to be able to do those things with the freedom from it like you say that's so much easier to then enjoy what you're doing or to kind of be in your life and in the everyday I guess I think that overwork point you made is so powerful, particularly for mothers and working mothers, because, you know, when we become a mother, I'm sure you had the same experience, you know, the luxury of being able to soothe my imposter by working 40, 50% than I needed to. I prepare for every meeting almost double than what I had to because I was so afraid I wasn't good enough. That opportunity was gone, actually when I became a mother because my hours and I think there was such a chance for me to learn actually I can prepare a bit less and I really showed myself like wow like I can prepare for a meeting in 10 minutes and it goes just as well as the one that I'd spent three hours before I was a mum preparing for because of the fear that was driving me do you see that a lot was that your experience as well when you became you're a mum of three I imagine you have to be super efficient (laughs) not much overworking going on tell us about that That is one of the big things I see too, that to convince someone that they can work less hard is quite a hard sell. But that idea of efficiency in terms of, well, actually, you know, those three hours you're preparing for a meeting, is that an efficient use of your time? And was it really worth it? And so when people start to pull back, not only do they start to see like you did, well, actually, the meeting can go just as well. 
but also they get a chance to do other things that might well even benefit the meeting the next day. So you have an evening where, I don't know, you watch TV with your family or you go out for a run or you do something that's beneficial for you outside of your work life. And yeah, definitely when I had children, it changed how I worked. And I think in some ways it kind of sharpened my focus of what was important and what was less important. With every child, the amount that you can do, it changes. And so in the past, I was somebody who couldn't really understand people who didn't reply to a text or remember to do something. Whereas now I'm definitely in that category because I've got too many things and I'm okay with that. And I think that being able to drop things when you need to and being able to focus on the things that matter is almost like a skill that you have to learn to develop when you have kids. I mean, maybe it's a good skill to develop no matter what, isn't it? But certainly it changes. And I think that it's like an ongoing thing. There's no point where you've like got it all worked out and you know what you're doing and you've got work in the right proportion. There are moments where it's like that and they're so enjoyable, but it's kind of constantly evolving as you learn more about yourself and as your life develops. I think that's such an important point, isn't it? That sometimes it's so easy as mothers to, particularly with school gates, I find you know, everyone just looks like they've got it sorted. I know from the work that I do that no one does because I know that every single mother, you know, whether they've got five children or one, there's some degree of imbalance of, you know, it just comes with it. And yet I still, you know, knowing what I know, doing the work that I do, I can still sometimes think, God, everyone looks really calm and I feel stressed out my head this morning. Do we need to be more honest with each other? Is that part of the puzzle as well to stop this idea that, there is a perfect way to do it. And if we don't feel perfect, we're not doing it perfectly, somehow we're failing. Yeah, definitely. And I think being more open and allowing yourself to share the things that are difficult is so important in terms of knowing that from other people because the first thing they say back is, oh, you know, God, this happened to me and there's an equal story or a similar anecdote that you then get to hear back. But I guess as well, it's just being so wary of comparison and that in some ways, you know, we're programmed to compare because of our evolutionary history but when it's not being helpful just seeing it for what it is because like you say the automatic response is oh have I done it well enough or you know when you're having a difficult week starting to compare and thinking that you're not doing well enough but the reality is as you start to stop and unpack it you're comparing parts of yourself to other parts of somebody else and it's never a fair comparison and it's not based on the truth of what you know about them either. I really notice this. I wonder if you notice it with your clients. Like lots of people will start working with me and we'll be talking about goals, you know, in coaching. That's really super important. We'll be talking about goals and what they want to achieve. And some people will say things like, you know, I just want to feel happy and joyful all the time, like you. And I'm like, hang up. First of all, you can't have that as a goal because no human, yeah. certainly no human I've ever met feels that way all the time. That's mm-hmm. not actually how we're des- designed. You know, we're, we've been given these range of feelings and emotions and to me my full humanity is that I experience all of them often in a day you know from despair to anxiety to joy to elation sometimes in the same hour with kids and I'm wondering if people see that of you you know someone who's written these books and if clients sometimes think that you have this kind of life where there is no difficulties and maybe how you share that with them and how you've come to accept that in yourself that life is just mm-hmm. messy I can really relate to what you're saying in terms of people coming and saying you know I just want to feel I just want to feel happy and this idea that every emotion is part of life and useful to us and 
part of being human, like you say. And even with all the experience I've got and like knowing all the strategies and skills, I definitely don't jump out of bed every day with a smile on myself, with a smile on my face or kind of feeling good all of the time. And like you say, that fluctuates over the course of a week, sometimes with good reason, work might be particularly busy or there might be loads going on for the kids. And sometimes just because you wake up that day and you're not feeling great and there's not a good explanation necessarily. And I think when I was younger, I had an idea about how life could be in terms of, you know, you can work really hard, do really well. And despite all this evidence to the country in terms of the work that I did, this belief or like an old belief that was like, but I can get it right. You know, I can do this in a way that means I'll miss that and I'll be fine because I'll do it in the right way. And one, getting older, but two, having children and then also the work that I do, you see that just isn't the case. But also that even if it was the case, you know, for me, that's not the way I want to go through my life, just constantly doing it all right or working really hard. And something that I talked about in my TEDx talk is this idea of, and like we've said in the podcast today, when I get here, then it's all going to be amazing and it's going to be different and it's going to go so well. And again, you know, like that's something that I still can fall into the trap of, like, oh, when this project's done and when I get to this point, it's going to be easier. And then it's, but what I've learned is that nothing changes in the future unless you change your day to day. And I suppose in terms of working with clients, obviously, it's very much about the person I'm seeing, but I'm also really transparent and my life isn't always running smoothly or certainly a long way from perfect. And I think just being able to share the things that are appropriate and useful is something that I also do in my work. It's so interesting, isn't it? I too used to look at adults and I guess from an yeah. age perspective, I am one now. And I used to think like they just had it sorted, that somehow you just become a parent or an adult and you just start to know how to do things. Mm. And I actually remember the moment, which I've unpacked for many hours in therapy, of when I realised I was 17 and I realised that my parents didn't have a clue either. And in a way, that was incredibly enlightening and empowering and also petrifying. I think we just have this idea that this elusive one day of when everything's going to fall into place and you talk so eloquently and brilliantly in your talk, I would encourage everyone to go and watch it, that that one day is today, that the one day is never coming. It doesn't exist. Yeah. I love how you talk about chasing the goals because I really relate to that, how I used to live. You know, my esteem was, was so low. My worth was so low. I would just chase a goal, get a goal. It wouldn't stick because I couldn't appreciate it because I had imposter syndrome and I'd go on yeah. to the next goal. and. It's just no way to live. And yet as a society, we still seem to celebrate that. How did you really change the way that you live from that goal orientation, that basing your yeah. happiness on external things to what I hear in your TED talk is that you've really transformed that and that your happiness comes far more from within and yeah. small daily actions? I think that first of all, it was having an experience of it where I was sure that this goal really mattered to me and would make a huge difference to me, which was the first books that I wrote. And it really didn't. It's different now as I look back on it. But at the time, the most exciting part was sending off the idea to the agent, you know, before anything had happened and the like excitement and wonder of what might happen and this possibility that was slightly impossible of ever writing a book. So I think it was doing the goals and seeing that it didn't bring me the joy that I expected. But also I think it was 
that you have an idea about life and then the kind of person that I am and the job that I do, it means you're constantly exploring that and thinking about it, whether it's working with people or thinking about it for yourself. And so it sounds a bit cheesy, but the thing that brings me the most joy is watching my kids do something. And suddenly I've got this kind of contrast of, you know, all these things I thought would be really important and that family life just made all of that seem quite insignificant in comparison. And I love my work and work is a big part of my life. But family actually is the most important thing to me. And it wasn't until I had a family that I could have known that. And even things like I live in Hove, I live on the beach, and I have this kind of amazing South Downs behind me and I could go for a walk, you know, and things like that, that I really underestimated. I love cycling and that I like going for a walk on the beach or taking the dog out with the kids. And that it's the smaller things that actually really make a difference to me and make a difference to how my week goes and that those big things are great to have as kind of a guiding light or an overarching theme to what you want in your life but getting lost in them or focusing only on them and putting life on hold I discovered that it just wasn't how I wanted to live. Yeah it's funny I had the same experience I was younger but I didn't take the insights from it I remember when I started my degree which was totally the wrong degree. I did economics, even though I'm pretty numerically dyslexic. And I just remember deciding I was going to get a first. That's how I was. Like I so needed external markers of success to feel okay. So I was like, what's the best you can do in a degree? Right, I'm going to get that. And I got it. I remember the day that I got it. And there was only two names that I'd got first. And I looked and I was looking up and, and I expected to feel elated. And I remember going back to my flat with this very dingy carpet and falling on that carpet and just sobbing. And it was because I didn't feel any different. Mm. Didn't feel any more feeling of worth. I didn't feel any different about myself despite having this piece of paper. And I think that was looking back now, such a big moment for me. But at the time I didn't have the awareness or the tools. I was young, like 21. I was like, I need a bigger goal. Like that was my response. Like, okay, I just need something bigger and better maybe, you know, and then I used to set myself these, you know, silly goals for promotions and when I was in my corporate career. And that's the thing, you know, that it, there's something always to replace it and there's something else that just, you know, that bit further out of reach. And chasing those things doesn't give you the space to actually take on board, well, why am I doing this? And is this important to me in the in a way that is kind of, good for my body mind and the goal part of me that loves those things it's not about not having goals because I imagine you have goals I have goals but today my kind of intrinsic motivation for those goals is really different you know my worth is higher so I don't feel like I need something external to feel okay so I'm able to be far more gentle with myself with my goals it's such a feminine way actually and I think we're moving this way in our world you know that kind of masculine energy and I'm not talking about kind of men and women but just masculine energy of fighting and pushing and needing to be the best and winning and it's been such an interesting experience for me particularly with this business these past five years just softening into that and trusting Mm -hmm. a bit more and if you experience that as kind of how do you hold that tension between goal orientation and yet still wanting to achieve things I think that part of it is knowing the kind of person I am so understanding that initially my pushback was like oh god I've got to be careful around goals whereas the reality is that I love a goal and it's just about approaching it in the right way and not having it so that it 
occludes everything else or it takes up too much prominence or that I'm trying to meet a goal and forgetting about the basics of care that I need in the rest of my life. And in a way, you know, if I wasn't doing my job, I'd find something else to, you know, have a goal in. And it's almost like a comfort that I am somebody who is slightly obsessive and like haven't got kind of major goals at the moment, but I'm somebody who like goes out on their bike and can't help but look at Strava and see how their times are doing. And I think at the beginning I was like, oh, I need to stop doing this. Whereas now I've got a comfort in the fact that that's just how I am. And if I can keep it in the right way and apply it to the right parts of my life, it can be a really positive thing. And I think that's something that's true of my clients as well. It's not that there's good things and bad things or good traits and bad traits. It's kind of using how you are to work best for you rather than, you know, say when I first started working, when I worked for goals, there wasn't much space left for me. Do you see that tendency in your children as well? They're kind of striving and maybe competing with themselves, which is a bit of what I hear Yeah, in that example. Is that filtered down or are they very different? I think that's one of the amazing things about having kids and being a psychologist is that before I had kids, I would say I thought less about trans temperament and personality. Obviously, I knew it was part of what makes you you, but it wasn't until I had kids that I really saw that play out. And so my kids, each of them is really different and they all have different temperaments and personalities. I definitely see similarities in terms of some of the things that they share with me and some of the things they share with my husband, for example. But yeah, they're they're not all just like me, definitely. (laughs) And you were sharing earlier about one of the consequences of imposter is overworking and and the kind of other side of that is being really clear on what's important. And you were saying family is really important. And I was wondering what else is really important to you today? And what was the process that you went through to get clarity on that? I think, again, it's something that is always evolving. And in a way, like, I think with these things, if you look at it too closely, it's kind of harder to see it. It's almost like a byproduct of living and noticing what makes a difference to when you feel like you're living well. And I guess doing my TED Talk, it made me think about what are the ingredients for my life being good and for people's lives being good. And I thought about these ideas of slowing down, empty time and natural highs. And that's something that I think has really helped me understand what makes me tick and what's important to me. So the first one in terms of when I first was, you know, a parent and working, I felt like there was this hurry to get to a certain point. Whereas now I can just see how much time I've got ahead of me. And that gives me real comfort in terms of, you know, for example, I've just finished doing a university course and the lecturers were incredible. And you were taught by people who were such experienced therapists and practitioners and seeing where they are in terms of their age, you know, quite a bit older than me, but also all that they've done and kind of seeing all this time ahead of me, I find really helpful in terms of there's no great rush to get onto the next thing or to do things. There's time to explore and try out stuff. And that makes a difference in terms of me being able to do the things that I want to do alongside the things that are important for my family and alongside the things that are important for my work. I think empty time, just having life not too filled and not too busy, which is again, a kind of warning sign for me when my life's overloaded and too busy, it's much harder to enjoy it. And it's much harder to think about what's important to me or do the things that matter. And then the last one is natural highs. And for me, that's been in a way, I don't know whether like surprise is the right word, but I suppose one of the things that I've done as an adult is to keep trying new things. And 
so for example my current thing that I love that is you know independent of kind of family and work is cycling like I've talked about but if I had gone with my initial views around cycling it was that like that definitely wasn't something for me and or something that I was interested in one of the things I think for myself that I find helpful is always reserving the right to change my mind on stuff so I might be really into one thing and think this other thing isn't right for me but actually I can change my mind and try new things and explore different possibilities and I think that whilst if I thought about where I'd be when I was younger there's lots that's happened that I might have imagined there's so much that's happened that I could never imagine and I think in a way it's just leaving things a bit more open and constantly having space to do things differently or change your mind about things or try things out and I guess the last part that I would say has influenced me is I read this brilliant research by a palliative care nurse called Bonnie Ware And she talks about the five regrets of the dying. And I think that just that simple question of, you know, how do I want to look back on my life? What do I want to see when I look back on it? You know, it's not that I want to be working so hard that I miss seeing my kids grow up, or it's not that I want to prioritise one area of my life so that it's really narrow and focused in one way. And I think just that's so person specific, but I also think like thinking about that is an important way to think about where you want to be now too. Yeah, I ask every single coaching client I've ever worked with that question. And I actually go one step further. I encourage them to write their own 80th birthday speech. Oh, that's lovely. I think in the day-to-day, especially with busy family life, young children, it's so easy to lose perspective about what really matters. And I think sometimes just taking that break. And I often go back and read my own and it's like, oh, yeah. The thing that actually I really want to be remembered for, the thing that I really want to experience is presence with the kids. And that might give me the courage to then cancel that meeting or not take that meeting in the first, you know. It was so important, that perspective. Yeah. Like you say, having a way to bring yourself back to where you are in terms of, that would be one that I think about, that I could easily take on more work in terms of, okay, it would run me down for a bit, but I could do it and maybe it's worth it for somebody else. But when I think about it in terms of, okay, well, what impact will this have on my family life? Then it's an easier way to say no to things. And I think the other thing is that it just made me think about it when you were talking it can go wrong a lot. You know, you can have points where like everything's not how I thought it should be or it's out of balance and that that's normal too. You know, that it all can be going well and then it just ends up for whatever reason, you know, work stuff or a pandemic or, you know, like life things happening and that it can go out of sorts. Things can feel really wrong, but that's part of life too. And not, I guess, not second guessing those periods, even though it can be hard not to. Yeah, I need to really remind myself of that. I've just been through a sticky patch. We moved to Dorset and so it's been really full on, really challenging. And, you know, it's just remembering that my thoughts aren't real because my thoughts want to say to me stuff like, you know, you can't handle this and, you know, there's something wrong with you. You need to go and get a diagnosis, you know, and it's like, actually, none of that is true. It's, it's yeah. just a sticky patch. And yeah. now I smile at that because I know not to listen to some of that stuff. I hold it up to the light. Is there any truth in this? What's the evidence? And then... Yeah, kind of smile that life is messy, isn't it? I try and tell my girls that a lot. Like, life is really messy. Like, don't start thinking that because mm. you're upset there's something wrong. Life's hard. You know, yeah. it's beautiful yeah. and it's fun and it's incredible and it's a privilege. It's also really hard. And I wish I'd have maybe heard that message a bit more growing up. I yeah. think it would have helped me. What do you wish you'd have heard a bit more from your parents growing up? You know, I think my parents were quite realistic about how life was. And in a way, 
<laughs> I think that I was determined for it not to be like that. You know, like my parents were quite matter of fact, you know, works really hard. These things are really difficult. You've got to stick at it. You've got to do those things. And so I suppose in a way I slightly rebelled against that to then in some ways my detriment, but also I think it was a good thing because it meant that I did study psychology something they wouldn't have necessarily kind of picked for me, even though they love that I do it now and that I've constantly gone back and studied or given up stuff to try something different. And again, they'd be a kind of, my parents are more like stick at it, work hard, and they've done really well with that approach. I don't know. It's such a good question. It's one I haven't thought about, but I suppose as well, I think maybe my parents were really good at kind of backing me and supporting me in everything I did, but maybe I didn't always know how well I was doing with it. And that my parents' generation and the kind of family they were from, they were very much like, don't boast lots about your kids. And I remember them kind of talking about, oh, did you hear so-and-so going on about their kids again? And it was kind of this, like, don't talk too much about success. Don't talk too much about the things, you know, you want to work hard at or you're good at. And I think that's something that is different when it comes to my kids because to have a sense of how you're doing, you kind of need to hear those things. And I don't know, I think that it's maybe slightly British too, but it's really important to connect to things that are going well because there's lots of space and a natural kind of, programming in us that means that you look at what's not going so well or that you're thinking about what the next thing is it's almost full circle from right where we started (laughs) syndrome isn't it which is you know the importance of looking at the full picture and celebrating what we do do right and not listening to that voice and I always ask the same question at the end of every interview which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world what would that one gift be and why Again, it's kind of thinking about it on the spot, but something that I always think about is for my kids, particularly like the ability just to tolerate frustration and to tolerate those difficult bits. And like where we started today, you know, that discomfort is just part of life and something to kind of, yeah, it doesn't feel very nice, but it's not something to worry about or avoid. And so I think it's just an acceptance of those things you know, kind of based on what we just said too, it feels hard sometimes because it is hard, but kind of sticking with it and working through those periods and backing yourself a bit or seeing that that's okay and it's part of being human is really important. And I think so often it's easy to find ways around it so you don't have to do those things or to kind of give up maybe a little bit too early because it's so hard to keep pushing or doing those things, particularly when you feel unsure of yourself. So I guess that would be the gift in a way to understand that that to be able to tolerate that frustration and uncertainty, but to also understand that that discomfort is kind of a sign you're doing it right rather than a sign you're doing it wrong. That's beautiful. That's such a good reminder. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists 
and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.